Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It's a bit like people who say, oh, science fiction is a predictive literature. Science fiction is not a predictive literature. Science fiction writers are like Texas marksmen. We fire the shotgun into the side of the barn and then we draw the target around the place where it hit. That is New York Times bestselling author Cory Doctorow on his latest sci-fi novel, Walk Away. He is an activist in residence for the MIT Media Lab, a visiting professor of computer science at Open University, and co-founder of the weblog Boing Boing. Full disclosure, stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us in studio, it is a privilege and an honor to have Corey Doctorow, writer, blogger, activist, hacktivist, cyberpunk, thinkfluencer, futurist. Tell, ah. me, tell me who you are, sir, because I'm just a chubby Iranian guy in khakis and a polo shirt. And Can, uh, can I disavow some of those words? Just <laughs> thinkfluencer. Uh, I am a science fiction novelist, and I'm an activist with Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, I'm a, a director's fellow, I think it's called, at the MIT Media Lab, uh, where my informal title is activist in residence. And I'm a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University. And as you say, I'm one of the owners of Boing Boing, so I write on Boing Boing every day. Uh, I write young adult novels, nonfiction, picture books, collections of essays, uh, short stories, lots of different things. Are you not a LinkedIn influencer? Ha! I'm a LinkedIn vegan. I don't use, um, I don't use it. Unusual Gardens. Why did they book this guy on my show? There's a lot of LinkedIn influence. That's got to be the minimum filter here. No, I honestly, I'm so grateful to you for coming by. Your your new book is out, and I've only started it. Uh, it is spellbinding, I have to tell you. The book is Walk Away. It talks about a... Uh, uh, f <laughs> I don't even know how to encapsulate it. There's a dystopian future where... Uh, people kind of want to, to go away from the wreckage that's become uh, unbelievable income inequality and abandonment, uh, climate change, uh, your, your risks, your, your, your fears have been confirmed as worse than can possibly be imagined. It is in many ways a, a cynical and hopeless world, and yet people uh, in those ashes find the commonality to kind of walk away and create something that is communal and empathic. Yeah, I call it an optimistic disaster novel. You know, I think the thing that uh, that defines a disaster as versus a catastrophe is what we do about it. Uh, you know, disasters are inevitable. You, you, earthquakes and floods and fire and mutating microbes and belligerent neighboring states, they, they come and go. But whether humanity rises to the occasion, whether our most noble nature is surfaced by them or whether we turn on each other, that's a... That is in many ways a function, first of all, of what it means to be human, and second of all, what we were doing just before the disaster hit. If we were all telling ourselves that your benefit is my loss, that um, it's zero sum, that we uh, all have to be at each other's throats because the uh, the highest virtue as, as a certain uh, unfortunately very popular science fiction writer once wrote um, – uh, self-interest is the highest virtue. Uh, if that's what you believe, then when disaster strikes, you don't go over to your neighbor's house with a covered dish, you go over with a shotgun. And these are people who believe that the highest virtue is under understanding and believing in our shared destiny. Talk to me about Ayn Rand. I mean, there was an enormous amount of, of introspection and, and uh, 
hand-wringing about that actually in the wake of the financial crisis and mm-hmm. this thing that, that really polarized the haves and the have-nots. And the depression, at least in the U.S. and the global depression in the 1930s, you were told that there were leveling tendencies, that this pushed the reset button on everyone. Mm-hmm. And yet we saw coming out of 2008 and 2009 that a whole side of the world got bailed out, Wall Street at 100 cents on the dollar. And even now that they tell us the unemployment rate is back down below you know, natural unemployment or whatnot, um, you still have unprecedented income inequality, and yet no one took pitchforks to the street. Uh, if, if you don't in that environment, in which environment are you going to do that? Well, I mean, I think some people took pitchforks to the street, just not in great numbers, and they were kettled most brutally and dealt with by a militarized police force, although they also took down governments all across the Middle East. And uh, I think that, that the in, re, re, ensuing political instability is playing out in the 2016 election and Brexit and what's happening in France this week. So I... I I don't know that nothing happened. I think that um, it may be a lot to ask for uh, the first tremor to be to, to knock down everything, but it might the first tremor might precede a quake. And I don't I, th- I think that the uh, after effects of the unsustainable uh, situation that that was manifest in the 2007 crisis and that has only mounted since are still being felt. And as you say, Rand gave intellectual cover, gave moral cover to the people who blithely asserted that by pursuing their self-interest and denying their shared destiny, they would make the world a better place and increase all of our prosperity. Uh, Rand is a great illustration of the problems with only reading one book. Um, You know, if you haven't read Rand, you probably should. But if you've only read Rand, you're in deep, deep trouble. And this is a book about People who are not as concerned as Ayn Rand was in how things work, but uh, more concerned with what happens when they stop working, how they fail. And in good engineering, that's the thing that we start with. We start with how we make a, a system that fails gracefully. Uh, we, it's easy to make a motor that speeds up and speeds up until it tears itself apart. Good engineers build damping mechanisms into those motors that allow us to control and steer them. And the whole idea of the unsteerable economy where we just accelerate it without ever trying to decide how we're going to use it and what we're going to use it for is an idea that, although it's embraced by a lot of people who who come from the engineering world, should never be uh, embraced by anyone who has an engineering background. I, I like to say that if uh, if Rand wrote a book about what happens when Atlas shrugs, when the millionaires decide they don't need the rest of us, this is what happens when we shrug back, when we say, all right, if you don't want us, we're out of here. Uh, you know, there was a woman in college who I was really in love with at the turn of the century in 2000. Uh, and she told me at the very outset that Atlas Shrugged was her favorite book. Had I known anything, had I known that she'd dump me mercilessly and rip out my heart. That is neither here nor there, mister. I have a friend who was Ann Coulter's uh, (laughs) college roommate who has stories that would curl your hair. I should have known. So I I, I cringe when I hear that. But I have to tell you, by way of almost, I don't know if it's free association or this, when I when I read the first uh, chapters of the book and I saw the title, I thought of a couple of things. One, uh, too big to fail uh, within the economy. I mean, the, the, the way the financial industry and the economy in the United States was set up so that when these institutions uh, do lend past their uh, kind of abilities, it, it, it wasn't kind of engineered in a way that they could fail gracefully or that they could decompose or biodegrade. There was a tremendous amount of recourse back into the rest of the system to the point that me, and my parents, we were well-behaved during the financial crisis. We didn't take out a subprime mortgage. We didn't um, seek a liar loan. Uh, we saved money. But I was punished uh, because interest rates went to zero as the system was euphemistically, you know, it's almost Orwellian, recapitalizing the banking system, mm-hmm. which means pay me nothing, give the banks free money. Uh, the banks go out, pay huge dividends, pay huge bonuses to executives. Uh, and yet I did not take to the street with pitchforks. But when I think back about the nine years of lost interest on my checking account or my parents who are older and who depend on fixed income, I should be livid. But what is keeping me, what is the opiate that's keeping me and the rest of the United States? I mean, aside from uh, Occupy Wall Street and the various other flare-ups that we've seen over the past decade. What's keeping everybody so calm? Well, let's start with Too Big to Fail, because Too Big to Fail is commonly understood to mean um, 
if the natural course of the economy is allowed to play out in respect of these banks, then the result will be a catastrophe that we can't recover from. Therefore, the banks should just be kept alive at any cost. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what too big to fail really means. What too big to fail means is that the amount of capital and influence concentrated into the hands of people who want the banks to continue as they are is so great that they um, can demand that the solution to their reckless conduct be um, allow me to continue this reckless conduct. You know, if they are staring down the barrel of, uh, of catastrophic failure, that is a moment at which regulators could say, for example, your future involves all of you being a lot smaller. You are going to decompose into a hundred much smaller institutions. You, uh, your shareholders are going to be zeroed out. We are going to um, uh, make sure that all of the debts are solvent, but the bank cannot continue as it is. Its influence must be reduced. If we can't trust bust at the moment that a trust is about to fail, we can never trust bust. Can you trust bust anymore, though, if I show you the list of banks that we've had regionally and nationally 20, 25, 30, yeah. 40 years ago versus now? It's kind of the reverse accordion effect. Oh, and it's not just it's not just that. It's publishing and it's pharmaceuticals and it's retail drugstores and it's many other things. Um, so Thomas Piketty wrote this book that inspired mm-hmm. me to write Walk Away uh, called Capital in the 21st Century. And he looks at the ebbs and flows of capital over 300 years, and his thesis is that um, the amount of wealth concentrated into the hands of the super rich dictates the extent to which policy benefits them. The richer you are, the more policy benefits you. And he looks at historic things that have reset the clock on that. So in France in 1789, they built guillotines that changed the amount of influence being exerted by the super rich because they all lost their heads and with it their fortunes. Uh, In America, you had a long period of relative egalitarianism because it was a low population agrarian society, which meant that labor held the whip hand just because of supply and demand. If you need a lot of workers to accumulate wealth and there aren't a lot of workers around, they demand a greater share of that wealth. This is one of the reasons enslaving people was economical in America and not in the more densely populated Europe where it ended a long time before uh, because um, it was uh, in a world where labor holds the whip hand, you need some coercive power like telling people that they're property in order to get them to accept the, the subsistence wages that allow for the accumulation of wealth. But since wealth was accumulated perversely in enslaved people, manumission totally reset the clock on wealth accumulation in America. So you had this relatively long period of redistributive policies, not just progressive tax, but things like not allowing landlords to uh, abuse their tenants and not allowing um, uh, employers to abuse their workers, things that reduce the share of income that goes to the capital classes and increases the share that goes to laborers. Uh, The world wars destroyed so much capital that it reset the clock again, and it brought us back to this moment where um, we could have what the French call the 30 glorious years, a a long period of broadly shared prosperity seen in things like the VA bill and so on. Not as broadly as we'd hope. Uh, I don't want to erase the extent to which redlining continued to uh, remove um, uh, racialized people from that shared prosperity, but nevertheless more shared prosperity than we see today. And Piketty concerns himself with like what we do in this century uh, in order to reset the clock again. And he says, you know, it would be preferable, all other things being equal, not to have two world wars or guillotines. And so he tries to tell the super rich they should voluntarily opt into a 1% global annual wealth tax, which he very wonkishly draws the uh, equations to show would eventually balance out our incomes. Um, in Walkaway, uh, that untenable... Uh, unstable wealth disparity where the super rich get to control all the policy outcomes, which means that, you know, on the one hand, if you have a great idea, you can just make it happen. On the other hand, if you have a dumb superstition, like the fact that climate change isn't real, or as we see in the Middle East, like the idea that excluding women from the civil society is a good idea, or like in Russia, where the idea that LGBT people are subhuman, um, you know, if you have those dumb ideas, you can turn them into policy. That 
destabilizes things because like reality is real. And so the woman who would otherwise cure your pancreatic cancer is stuck, uh, you know, not allowed to drive herself to med school. And uh, the gay guy who would figure out how to launch the next great company is stuck uh, in a gulag. And the Syrian refugee who would come to your country and found Apple as happened in this country, is also excluded. And eventually reality asserts itself and you have to do something about it. And that's what the walkaways are doing. They are walking away from the consensus that says that so long as the super rich can spend their way out of the instability, everything is fine. And they are, in the words of Alistair Gray, living as though it were the first days of a better nation. They are creating the existence proof that we need not inhabit the dumb superstitions of the super elite. Why did I think about so many other reference points? Uh, also, Children of Men. Sure. The well, that I saw. Yeah. One thing that you and I talked about offline was uh, Ursula Le Guin's uh, short uh, fiction work, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, if you kind of want to unpack that for me. I'm, I'm reading this, and, and there was also a scene, was at the end of 1984, Fahrenheit 54, where uh, mirrors, uh, we needed to reassemble mirrors. I just remember reading this in, in the that ninth might grade be or Fahrenheit something. 451. We need I don't to look at ourselves again. It's yeah. a, such an eclectic piece. It doesn't really ape from anything. And I thought about Piketty. I thought about these other things. And I thought about Children of Men. I thought about them sitting in that fortress, you know, with the guy, uh, the, 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 the little kid kind of tapping on his phone and blissfully unaware of everything else going on. And you could close off the world, but at some point it's going to come back for you. Well, you know, clearly writers like James uh, and and Le Guin and, and uh, Kim Stanley Robinson and uh, Octavia Butler – uh, spent decades before I came on the scene figuring out how to tell stories about how your beliefs about your neighbor's goodness or badness affects whether or not your neighbors are good or bad. And um, mm. I, I was definitely infected by their ideas. Um, this novel was originally called Utopia, and it took as its thesis that a utopian society is not one that never fails, but one that fails gracefully because all things are impermanent. You know, the second law of thermodynamics isn't just a good idea. It really is the law. Entropy is a thing. Uh, and I sent it to Kim Stanley Robinson for a quote. And Stan uh, read it and sent me back a wonderful quote, which is on the back jacket of the book. But... Uh, he also said, why have you called this book Utopia when it should clearly be called Walk Away? And he was absolutely right. So now the book is called Walk Away. And he may have been thinking of Le Guin's uh, story, but I was not, to be honest. I do want to talk to you, Cory Doctor, about something else in that I, I read biographically in the, the birth of your uh, daughter. Was it 2008, 2009? Mm -hmm. um, and I remember the first time, I, for some reason, um, again, in reading this and, and pondering uh, empathy – uh, broadly, and I know that's something that's bandied about quite a bit, but I was intensely, especially my son was premature when he arrived in 2010, I was uh, really uh, traumatized uh, looking around uh, in the crucible of Manhattan and that people didn't ask me about my child. People didn't care about me as a father outside of, of the profession where I had to put on a brave face at a magazine every morning and that I was unusually uh, uh, self-aware and aware about other children's suffering. And I think about how um, uh, people just have the capacity to not think about other children's suffering. It's one of the biggest problems I have, and it goes back to the Omelas poems. And I think about a society like this, uh, when people deny global warming, when people uh, deny health care, and I don't want to get into a political argument. Uh, you have grandchildren. Other people have grandchildren. Isn't there an embedded empathy? Shouldn't there be? Or, or was I deluding myself growing up to think that that's something that makes us human? I think particularized humans are, are hard to deny empathy to. But great masses of humans, and this is in the, the psychiatric literature, the sociological literature, we see one child dead on a beach and our hearts are shattered. Uh, or even, you know, even people who clearly have defective personalities like the president see children being gassed and even his heart is moved. Now it's moved to do reckless and terrible things, but it's moved. And we contemplate the fate of lots of children. And there is a certain uh, element maybe of self-care in limiting your empathy because it, that, that concrete heart-wrenching empathy, if you multiply the way you feel about that one kid by all the kids you know who are suffering today, I can't imagine how you'd even get out of bed. Uh, and so we, we live 
in a world of contradictions. We live in a world in which we give one beggar money and then we don't give the next beggar money and then we give money to a charity but only sometimes and we you know we 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 try to find a systemic solution and when we do when we say I, I, I'm giving money to a food bank or a homeless shelter a retraining program or a, a, a woman's shelter I'm doing it because I want to fix the system because I, I my the dollar I give to someone begging on the street doesn't fix the problem but the hundred dollars or five hundred dollars I give to the food bank at the end of the year might make a difference in people's lives but then you see someone who really clearly needs a, a hand and you give them some money and you think well, if that person needs a hand and I gave them money instead of saying, I will fix the systemic problem and not the individual problem, why wouldn't I give money to the next person I saw who needed it? And figuring out how to navigate that, the internal inconsistency of giving money to one person and not another, of inadvertently creating a pity Olympics where the people who, who seem most desperate are the ones we, we give money to rather than trying to figure out where our dollar can do the most good, it's really tough. One of the things, you asked me about Rand, and one of the things about Rand's intellectual progeny that they have, that they have going for them at their best is there's a big overlap between the libertarian right and what's called the rationalist movement. And the rationalist movement is a group, it's not exclusively the province of the right, there are people on the left in it too, who want to look at behavioral economics and evidence-led psychological findings, find the ways in which we make mistakes consistently in how we assess things like risk and value, how we misjudge what we want, and later on it turns out that what we did didn't get us what we want, and who try to fix it by doing things like having arguments where no one is allowed to proceed until I can tell you what your argument is so well that you tell me that I've got it right and we don't start arguing until each of us can present the other one's argument to the other person's satisfaction. These hallmarks of the rationalist movement are really uh, an optimistic thing for our future because mm. it suggests that we really listen to each other. And it's the, it's, the, it's the rationalist movement that's leading things like Houses First, where in Salt Lake City and in other places, they just give homeless people houses. They're like, no, we're not going to make sure you're not alcoholic before we give you a house or not addicted to drugs or don't have mental problems or have a job. Because you know what? Solving all of those problems is a lot easier when you've got a place to live. Mm. And we know that because we looked at that because we did an experiment, right? We're not, it's not just, it would be nicer if, if having a house helped people get off drugs. It's a fact that it's having essential. a house. It's Maslowian. Yeah, yeah, but it's also, but it's not just a theory object from looking at a, a triangle diagram. It's a thing that we did a randomized controlled experiment on. This is why direct cash grants have become so voguish, because it turns out that if you just show up at poor people's houses in sub-Saharan Africa and hand them a whack of money instead of telling them what they need to do to develop themselves, they solve their problems significantly better than they do when people come in and tell them what they should be doing to solve their problems. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are here in studio with Cory Doctorow, best-selling author of the novel Walkaway, which you really must read. He's also the co-owner of boingboing.net. Uh, He's uh, affiliated with the MIT Media Lab. He splits time between uh, Burbank and Toronto, and he's on book tour right now. He's going to appear at the Fountain Bookstore in RVA uh, tonight. Um, I do want to uh, understand, and you know, we, we talked about Ayn Rand and the Fountain again. Uh, let's get to Donald Trump. Mm. <laughs> Can't avoid this elephant in the room. And uh, Donald Trump and this much ballyhooed, bandied about idea of uh, the Rust Belt worker who just had nothing else to hang on to, be it in Wisconsin at the Snap-on factory, the Carrier factory, be it in Pennsylvania, that was uh, so cynicized and so inured to the, um, you know, the anodyne phrases and promises of both the right and the left and the kind of the Clinton moderation that they just said, what the heck, let's just unleash a greased pig into uh, D.C. Uh, do you buy that, Reed? I mean, what were you thinking when that happened? What was this a reaction to? Yeah. So I think that the concept of Overton windows is really useful here. That's the idea that there are some things that you can say politically 
without sounding like a like a kook. But there are other things that you're just not allowed to say without sounding like a kook. Clearly, Trump smashed a lot of Overton windows, uh, as did the Brexiteers in the UK. And um, the Overton window in American politics has not included the idea that the system is rigged, despite the fact that the system is obviously rigged, right? When congressmen spend four hours of every working day calling millionaire donors uh, to get reelected, when, you know, between gerrymandering and campaign finance. Well, the Orwellian thing is that he was campaigning saying that the system was rigged. Of course. And now the espousal of a supposedly rigged system. No, but no, no, no. I, I hear you. But I think that this is the point, that if there is a thing that is both widely known to be true, extremely salient to people's lives, and not something you're allowed to say in politics, and one person says it, that person, by being alone in in the race saying it, if they can avoid being branded a kook, if they can avoid being marginalized, if they can get on the ballot paper... Everything else they say acquires an unearned penumbra of credibility. Is the bar that low? Well, okay, look at other places where this has happened, right? You have the um, uh, historic Mubarak regime in Egypt. Uh, The Overton window consensus is that Mubarak gets guns and treasure from America because he's a wise and good leader. This is so totally untrue. He's a thug and a barbarian and and an incompetent administrator to boot. Uh, There is one group of people who consistently say, actually, Mubarak gets all this guns and treasure because he has a politically expedient uh, um, position on Israel, right? And the people who say that say, oh, you're being cynical are, are told, oh, you're being cynical by everyone else or you're nuts. But it's the Muslim Brotherhood, the Isla- uh, and, right. right? And they're Islamists. And the rest of their program is just a bit daffy and not not a good, you know, just like leaving aside like my political disagreements with Islamism. It's just unlikely to produce a well-governed state that has prosperity for the people who vote for it. And yet, after the revolution, they get elected, right? And they got elected because... By being the only people out there saying the reason your your son was put in jail and tortured to death, the reason, you know, you can't get a job because you were beat out in a bribe, the reason all of these terrible things have befallen our country is because Mubarak has a politically convenient position on Israel. Just by being willing to say that, they were – everything else they said was given more credence than it should have been. It's like mm. Douglas Adams saying, if you carry the towel around while you're hitchhiking, people you meet will assume that you also have a toothbrush and, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, a carry-on bag and all the other things you might need, and they'll replace them for you if you tell them you've lost them, right? By being the only person in the room willing to say the system was rigged, despite the fact that everyone could tell, anyone who cared to look could tell that Trump rigged the system, would rig it more, was a beneficiary of its rigging, and would ensure that he would go on benefiting from its rigging. Nevertheless, the stuff that he said ended up sounding credible, including the stuff That's that... kind w- of... I, I know you use really sophisticated, futuristic, postmodern language, but it's almost like a Jedi mind trick. How do you convince people to do that? You are a... You're, I wouldn't say you're a self-made billionaire on the uh, Upper East Side, not exactly an Ayn Rand-type figure who puts up and tears down towers and everything, but you right. inherited the money from your parents. You're thrice divorced. You're a, a yeah. carnival barker-type person on reality television. How do you then transmogrify that into, I don't know, populist cred or bring jobs back cred? And then not only that, but surrounding himself with with a Wall Street coterie after so the fact. I think, just, that, I think that— Maybe I'm naive. (laughs) Well, so the way to understand this, it's a bit like people who say, oh, science fiction is a predictive literature. Science fiction is not a predictive literature. Science fiction writers are like Texas marksmen. We fire the shotgun into the side of the barn and then we (laughs) draw the target around the place where it hit. But what science fiction's relationship to the future is, is that considered as a class, science fiction writers and the science fiction stories they've written today and yesterday, they are this enormous, diverse collection of tales that express potential fears and aspirations for technology. Hmm. And editors, publishers, and the public survey this great landscape, this spectrum of ideas about things you might be afraid of or hopeful for in technology. They pluck out the ones that reflect their hopes and fears. And as a kind of selective force, they bring to the fore the futures and uh, that surface that latent 
anxiety, that latent aspiration. And so science fiction writers can look very prescient as how was it that you were able to so well put your finger on the hopes and fears of your moment to capture the zeitgeist? Maybe you had a really good idea about the zeitgeist, but maybe you just were the one of all the people throwing dice who mm. who got the, whose number came up. And there are a zillion Trumps out there saying hateful, awful things. And eventually there was a moment at which being the guy saying the hateful, awful thing in the right place at the right time in the right political moment was able to rocket him to prominence. You know, another way of thinking about this is like information security. So there's these Google Drive worms going around now. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't get fooled by that, but I got fooled by a worm some years ago, a, a Twitter worm. And I'm an information security practitioner. I know a lot about it. Uh, and what happened that day uh, was that um, the day before, I'd had three columns come out, and I'd gotten a new phone and reinstalled my my all my apps. And then that day, we were a little late dropping our daughter off to daycare. So we went to a cafe for coffee, my wife and I, and the line was longer than it usually is. So instead of hanging out and talking, my wife went to read a free newspaper, and I stood in line and pulled out Twitter. And uh, I had like a DM from a friend that said, was that you? And then had a link. Mm. And I was like, oh, I was probably talking about that column. So I clicked the link and it brought the Twitter link up in my browser, which was the thing that was happening because I just reinstalled my apps and the links were opening in the wrong apps. And it asked me for my password, which is also happening because I oh, just reinstalled gosh. it. So I entered in my password, right? And then... I went back and there were seven more identical tweets from other people. And I was like, oh, I just got fished. So here's the thing. Imagine a thousand pieces of Swiss cheese that all have holes randomly distributed, all passing in front of each other, all moving back and forth. If you have enough sticks poking the stack of Swiss cheese, one of them will find a moment in which all the holes line up and the stick goes all the way through the stack. I also think it's because you're Canadian and trusting, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think— Corey Doctorow got fished? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What's the world coming to? So this is it, right? It doesn't mean—you doesn't. You don't have to be clever. You just have to be persistent and considered as a system. They are persistent. Your skin right now is crawling with staph bacteria because all of our skin is crawling with staph bacteria, some of which is mutated into superbugs. But— and that's true of all of us. But most of us don't get the superbug because it has to not only mutate into a superbug, it has to have a good reproductive environment. It has to have a break in your skin. It has to have the moment at which it happens. We think of staph mutation as being a thing that happens rarely, but what's actually rare is the alignment of the stars that has your toxic staph bacterium, your break in your skin, the weakness in your immune system, and all the rest of it all aligned with you also being around someone else who can carry the pathogen away from you when you get sick uh, and infect them. And all of those things combined to create the epidemiological circumstances for contagion to spread. What let Trump spread? It was a perfect storm. Corey, I thought I had existential angst and have trouble sleeping at night. Huh. What the heck do you think? How do you pipe down? I, I mean, write science fiction novels. Really? So that's a coping mechanism for you? It's absolutely a way of kind of pulling out my fears and aspirations about technology and are taking these like lofty abstract ideas that I'm talking about now and boiling them down into a pulp novel because – Science fiction is a pulp literature. William Gibson did this amazing interview in the Paris Review where they asked him, like, what do you think of snooty English professors who look down their nose at science fiction writers? And he said, you know, when I meet one of those guys, I know that as a writer out of the pulp tradition, I got one thing he doesn't have. I can plot. My tractor has wheels on it, right? And so science fiction, like, I don't want you to get the idea that Walk Away is a lofty abstract novel of you know, people having difficult to follow interactions. It's a novel about Zeppelins fighting with mechas using rail guns, right? It is it is your your basic verse verse chorus kind of adventure pulp novel. But it's an adventure pulp novel that brings up all this other stuff that matters to me and tries to make sense of it. I'm asking you uh, D to D, dad to dad, how do you how do you look into your daughter's eyes and begin to even tell her about the world that's out there. I keep thinking of the Cat Stevens song, or is it Yusuf Islam now? Was it, ooh, baby, baby, it's a <laughs> wild world. Well, you know, uh, explaining to my East London born and reared daughter who now lives in, in the San Fernando Valley in the Trump era, what's going on in the UK and what's going on in the US, it's a bit tricky. 
But there's an interesting example of where it's gone right uh, in how we talk about Edward Snowden, my daughter and I. Mm -hmm. The Snowden story was very important to me when it broke. Talk to me about it. Uh, well, I was I was away for a weekend with some friends, including a very senior Googler. We saw this report in The Guardian, which I was writing for at the time, that said that uh, there were these uh, NSA servers and all these data centers, and we were trying to figure out what it could possibly mean because we thought probably the newspaper hadn't got it, you know, hadn't just made it up because I knew The Guardian folks pretty well. Uh, but my friend also knew that there were data centers where there were people who could never get security clearance, like, you know, people who people who were uh, green card holding um, Iranian nationals, for example, who would never have the security clearance, but who would have to know in order for that that prism server to go in that data center. And then we saw Snowden. I actually took the I, I went back into town from this weekend in this country house that we'd rented out to do an event at the Stoke Newington Library. And we went back into town and there was the video of Snowden talking to Poitras. And I was like, God, I I I hope many things about this guy. I hope he doesn't turn out to be an asshole. I hope he doesn't go before a firing squad. And both of those things came true. And my daughter noticed that my wife and I, and she must have been, that was 2013, so four years ago, she was five when that happened. And she started to ask questions. And I said, there was a spy and he became a spy because he wanted to find bad people who were going to mess up his the, the the country he lived in and people who were innocent. And then he discovered that the spies that he worked with were spying on everyone in the world, <laughs> you and me, and that they were breaking the law and they wouldn't listen to him when he asked them to stop. And so he took all the secrets of all the spies and he went and told a reporter, you know, I, I'm a reporter. So my daughter knew what that was. And over the years, we fleshed out that story. So her understanding has become more and more complicated, more and more nuanced. And last night, I was on stage with Ed Snowden at the New York Public Library. And uh, he was live from Moscow. And I spoke to her about it this morning. And we had a really meaty discussion because little by little, she's absorbed the nuance. You know, not all at once, but in part where I would try to find ways to relate to her what I thought Snowden had done to relate it to what was going on in her life and our life, but more because she would say, is this like that thing you told me about, Dad? Mm. And, you know, kids, It's there's an interesting thing about child prodigies, which I'm not saying my kid is a child prodigy, thank God. Uh, but um, child prodigies are always people who can do things like... Um, play chess really well or do math really well or do physics really well because these are, are bounded, internally consistent disciplines where if you understand some certain principles and then have reasoning capabilities, you can reason through all the rest of the principles. You will never, I think, I'm going to say never, find a child prodigy historian or a child prodigy sociologist because the context, not the capacity to reason, but the context that you need to reason well is so vast that there's just a certain amount of time it takes to absorb that context. So your daughter is cognizant of the Holocaust, of Pol sure. Pot, of all uh, Not Pol Pot. I don't think we've talked about Pol Pot. Definitely. She just did a project on Anne Frank for school. So, yeah, she's she knows about the Holocaust. See, this is the biggest problem I have, and it might be too much information, is it just... Gosh, there's something so pure and ephemeral about the kid's innocence that I'm in no rush to kind of ease them into, uh, ease them, but start to tell about these things. Start oh, to tell them the towers crashed into sociopaths, these buildings. right? They're selfish in theory, little, little in buggers. Theory. And, you know, it's selfish too in that I see myself and my son and, you know, I'm, um, these are some of the things I wanted to talk to you about. And, 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 you know, to the extent you talked about Snowden, Cory Doctorow, uh, in 2014, you you wrote "Information Doesn't Want to Be Free," a business book about creativity in the internet age. Sure, yeah. Um, and I I kind of do want to unpack that because it, to just cut to the chase. How do you make money? How do creatives make money in this day and age? Everybody and his mother has a podcast. Sure. Everybody writes for exposure on HuffPo. Uh, you just gave me a copy of your book on a KGB sanctioned uh, card to insert <laughs> a, a, an audio book. Yeah. Um, so there's just information everywhere. It's like sipping from a fire hydrant. Well, let's start with uh, an important idea out of economics, survivor bias. So uh, XKCD did a really good comic strip about this recently. It was a man standing on a stage saying, uh, I wasn't sure at first whether I could win the lottery. 
but I really believed in myself. So I mortgaged my house, I sold my kids, and he's standing in this amid bags of money. And he's like, and here I stand before you to tell you, you can do it too. How do people make a living in the arts? Uh, No appreciable fraction of people who wanted to make a living in the arts ever in the history of the world made a living in the arts, Mm. ever, in the whole history of the world. How do you help people who want to be artists? Well, you make sure that people who are in precarious circumstances uh, don't slip off the ladder. So like... Healthcare is a great way to help artists. Um, you make sure that people who don't have access to a lot of capital, like people who rent instead of people who own houses, uh, are have fundamental rights. So tenancy protection, that's a really good arts policy. Um, you can have direct grants to arts. I'm a Canadian-British dual national. I'm a great, I've seen great things come from direct grants to the arts. And then more broadly, you enact policies so that the tiny random sliver of artists who make a living from their art, who who make money from their art, whose art generates money, that they are first in line to get that money when it's generated. And that's what information doesn't want to be free as a book about. It's not about how to ensure that a no- larger number of people win the lottery, because the way you make more people win the lottery is by, is by generally uh, making it so that if you don't win the lottery, you don't starve. Um, but, uh, Ensuring that lottery winners retain the bulk of their winnings, that's a thing we can do with policy. So, for example, we have ramped up intermediary liability for copyright infringement so that if you want to run a service like YouTube, you need to spend a couple hundred million dollars on a system like Content ID to, to block copyright infringement. Now, the first thing the movie industry who insisted on this will tell you is that it doesn't work. The second thing they'll tell you is that if you're starting a competitor to YouTube, you better have one. Well, what that means is that we don't have a competitor to YouTube anymore. And so you have five movie studios and one YouTube. And uh, if you want to do a deal, all of the deals from all of those companies are going to be substantially the same. We have four record labels. And the four record labels are among the big entities that have pushed YouTube to add intermediary liability. And when YouTube wanted to... um, Uh, launch a competitor to Spotify. They got the four labels in a room and they negotiated with them the deal for licensing their catalogs for streaming. And then they issued a proclamation to all the independent artists who had been using YouTube to promote their works to get away from the abusive terms and contracts of the four labels who by dint of their concentration could treat themselves as being in a buyer's market and abuse the talent almost without limit. And they said to them, if you want to use YouTube at all to promote your music ever again, you take the deal the big four just negotiated. Oh, boy. So they became an arm of the big four. They became the big five. How did Spotify happen then? Well, Spotify, uh, as you may have noticed, is not in great shape. Um, Spotify gives almost all the money it gets, as does Pandora, to the record labels who give almost none of it to the artists. The um, artists uh, are join the labels when they call for more of the money to be given to the labels. They mistake the fact that the labels are, are squatting on all this money for the kind of um, naturally occurring phenomenon and not a foundational injustice that means that they don't have the same interest of the labels and should be very suspicious of their calls. And um, Spotify, Pandora, and the rest of them may not be long for this world as a result. Uh, if... The, so one of the best things that we've ever done to help artists get a, um, a bigger share of their income is to create a, what's called a copyright reversion system where uh, many contracts, even if they are st- structured so that they're perpetual deals, artists are allowed to go back to the labels after 35 years and say, I want out of my contract and you have to buy me back in. And so a lot of the digital catalog revenues that are being given to old line artists who had success with the labels, they're being done on um, one-off deals where someone's catalog is about to come up for uh, renewal and they go to EMI or they go to, to Universal and they say, either you give me a fair share of my digital royalties or I'm just going to do it. I'm going to take my catalog back from you and do a direct deal with Apple and with Amazon and the rest of them. And that's how they're getting a reasonable deal out of them because they're able to go around them. Giving more negotiating strength to successful artists will always help those successful artists get more money out of their labels. Creating more copyright liability for intermediaries reduces the negotiating strength of artists by reducing the competition for their work. 
I think that to my mind, maybe Netflix is one of the only players out there getting paid for its content right now, that there's a willingness to pay, even oh. though you can share Netflix logins and they're very Oh, I assure you, YouTube that. makes a lot of money. They just don't get paid by the by the end well, not not in great measure by the end users. Uh, Cord Doctor, our best-selling author of Walkaway, close us out in the few minutes we have left with you. It's so nice to have you in uh, RVA. I know you're all across the, the mid-Atlantic and the eastern seaboard and jet-setting between New York and L.A. What oh, else should we be watching? What else is on your mind? Well, I'll, I'll talk a little about that audiobook, if I may. Please do. Uh, I, uh, I have a policy that all of my work is, is what's called DRM-free. It has to be sold without any digital restrictions that stop you from making uses that the law allows, uh, but that the the seller does not. Uh, so, you know, you can play it on any device, you can lend it to a friend, you can give it away when you're done with it. All of those things you can't do with, say, an audible audiobook. How are you comfortable doing that? Is there a big advance at the front of this? I mean, you are a you are a best-selling author. Sure, I, I make I make a pretty good living. I'm a lottery winner, but I'd do this even if if it wasn't the case. First of all, it has nothing to do with stopping piracy. I'm going back to, you know, this question of like, how do we maximize the leverage of the right people in the in mm. the supply chain? Every DRM system has ever made has been broken in an afternoon by teenagers with hobbyist <laughs> right. equipment. So you know, all DRM media, everything on Audible. Everything on Netflix, you can download it from a pirate website. You can stream it for free if you don't if you don't care about following the law. So what what DRM gets them because it's illegal to break DRM even for a legal reason is it lets them decide who can make competing products. You know, if it's legal to make a VCR to record off the air signals, it's legal to make a VCR to record your Netflix. But because you have to break the DRM to do it, Netflix gets to decide who makes a VCR. Well, you know, if they want a copyright law that says you're not allowed to make a VCR, let them get Congress to make it. Don't uh, start to confiscate the public's rights and copyright just because. When it comes to books, we have millennia of social contract about what you can and can't do with a book. It's older than publishing, older than printing, and older than paper that what you can and can't do with a book. And the fact that five multinational corporations have decided by fiat to renegotiate that unilaterally and decide that the freedoms that have come with books since time immemorial are not a factor in the 21st century because books are bits, that's garbage. So, you know, I do it for that reason too. And you are comfortable, I mean, on your website or on your on your Twitter handle, anywhere else to just post up PDFs to your books, bar none. So a whole ton of them, not all of them. It's, it all depends on and making your publisher sure that I'm being a good partner with, with like my Walkaway's publisher. Walkaway's publisher? Well, Walkaway is not a Creative Commons download, but it is available on my own ebook store. So I did something with this book no one else had ever done. I'm a retailer for my publisher. Hmm. So if you buy the ebook from me, from craphound.com, which is my domain, instead of from Amazon, I get the top 30% that Amazon gets, and I get the 25% on the back end. And not only do you get a DRM-free ebook, but you get a DRM-free ebook that has no terms of service, no license agreement, nothing that says by being dumb enough to be my customer, you agree that I'm allowed to come over to your house and punch your grandma and wear your underwear and make long-distance calls and eat all the food in your fridge. The deal that comes with that book is the same deal that comes with the, the print book. Is that a function of your cloud as an author, though? It's a dumb question, but yeah, you know, as a, yeah, a but if you, but hell, if you've got privilege and you're not using it to make things better, then what the hell, right? So, I sell this audiobook myself. I, 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 I Random House Audio used to do my audiobooks, but because I wouldn't let them sell it through Audible, because Audible wouldn't let me choose DRM. Audible being owned by Amazon. Yeah, ninety percent of the audiobook market. Uh, Random House said, "Well, we don't want to do that anymore." It's fair enough. Um, other audiobook publishers have published my work and they do a nice job, but they don't do the kind of gold-plated job you get when you're a lead title. And this is a lead title. I'm touring 30 cities in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Uh, it has this massive marketing push, and I wanted a really high-quality audiobook. So I said, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to sell it myself. I'll do a distribution deal with Blackstone, who have a DRM-free audiobook store, but I'm going to sell it off my own site. So I hired the best readers I know to read this book. It's got Will Wheaton. It's got uh, Amanda Palmer from the Dresden Dolls. It's got um, Amber Benson from Buffy. Uh, it's got Myron Willis. It's got uh, Justine Iyer, who's a, an audiobook superstar. Uh, it's got um, uh, uh, oh, I'm missing some people here. Re Lisa Renee Pitts uh, uh, and Gabrielle DeQuere, who also edited, who uh, directed it. And it is a no kidding, totally badass, 15 hour unabridged multicast 
audiobook that's going to win awards this year at the. And you, but you think the economics will check out in the end? I mean, it's totally. early in the game. Totally. No, I'm. I'm. Well, for one thing, I get a hundred percent of the revenue from it. So, but did you have to pay these voice talents up front? Full rate scale. And you're confident enough in the scale? Absolutely. I know how my other audiobooks performed. So yeah, this is going to earn out pretty dang quick. Sir, who is your literary agent? Gosh. Uh, Russell Galen, agent to uh, <laughs> Philip K. Dick, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, um, Norman Mailer, uh, and many others. Well, you see my upcoming book in front of you. It's so nice of you to take it. It's better yeah. than going straight to Kinko's. I mean, it's the existential it's the existential dilemma we all have. Like yeah. I spent, this is a labor of love. I spent 20, 22 years going into it and mm. all these sunk costs and everything and you just want to see it uh, it's part of some canon. You want as many people on the planet to be able to appreciate it and enjoy it as possible, and yet you have to deal with a publisher. You have to deal with Barnes & Noble and Amazon, and Amazon now has the second richest person on the planet as its owner uh -huh. and founder, and he owns the Washington Post, and he has Audible, and we're talking about concentration. To go back to the very beginning of this conversation, too big to fail, when you, when you parallel that in terms of media and publishing mm -hmm. and, and wireless cloud and the ownership of the networks just takes us into various different uh, rabbit holes. And yeah, I have sure. to commend you in reading your book, and I'm only three chapters into it, that I, I constantly think of all these things and the road oh, we're good. headed down. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. I hope you like the mecha battles, too. <laughs> oh, boy. You are the man, Cory Doctorow, author of Walkway, best-selling author, uh, co-founder of BoingBoing.net. You have to pick up the book. Um, give us your Twitter handle, please, your deets. It's uh, at Doctorow. And I'm the first Cory in Google. Just put C-O-R wine to Google, you'll find everything. Sir, you are a gentleman and a scholar and a model Canadian uh, dual national for coming on our show in our tiny little podunk town here. I'm grateful. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can catch us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. We are on Twitter at FullDRadio and Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. It's